0: And I knew it when I was prostrate on the floor, when the bishop placed in my hands the Book of the Gospels. I knew it, I knew it'd never be the same. And um, so it's really characterized the foundation of my own calling and ministry now for 27 years.
1: Deacon Keith Fournier, welcome to the program. Thank you. First of
0: all, please forgive me for my voice, but you know it's good for my humility. (laughs) I did have a heart procedure, and three weeks later, the voice is still not back. But John Henry, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to meet you for the first time again 20 years later. (laughs) We go back two decades, but also to honor this wonderful successor, the Apostles, who I have the privilege of assisting as a deacon, Bishop Joseph Strickland.
1: Beautiful. Well, let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. If you wouldn't mind leading us, please. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray
0: for the presence of your Holy Spirit during this entire time that we have together. We thank you for the great gift of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, in his mystical body, the Church, and in a special way for the great gift of his mother and our mother, the Mother of the Church. May her prayers draw us ever closer to him. In the name of the Father, the Son. the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
1: So it's very interesting to find you here in Tyler, Texas, because you were for many, many, many years in Virginia and doing just great there. And um, you had a, well, a career as a a deacon and in the pro-life movement. That's where we first met. And uh, what brings you to Tyler? And why at this time in your life? Most of your family, I think, is back in Virginia. They are,
0: yeah. My wife and I have been married 47 years. We've raised five children. We have eight grandchildren. I've been ordained as a deacon 27 years. But John Henry, I've been serving the Lord for almost 50 years now. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm came back to the church, I'm a revert. Came back through the early fathers and have spent my life wanting to tell people about the beauty of being a Catholic and the depth of being a Catholic um, in preparation for ordination and then after ordination, I've steeped myself in theology. So I'm a constitutional lawyer, as you know, I did pro-life work, but also a theologian. I love the church, and I've been trying to just serve the Lord as a son of the church my whole life my life has taken chapters almost I think we all go through that but as you get older and I am 68 you begin to look back and say "Uh uh-huh Lloyd you are guiding me and I seem to be at the beginning of things I was an early responder uh to Father Mike Scanlon's call to the College of Steubenville transferred there as a student graduated helped him went on to law school because of my passionate pro-life convictions with his encouragement came back, became a dean, dean of students, dean of evangelization, conferences, all that. And Steubenville flourished. My law degree, and I went to law school because I wanted to represent all unborn children whose lives were taken through the intrinsic evil of abortion. Well, that law degree mattered, and I knew it. And it led me to the next chapter. I ended up moving to Virginia. Steubenville was flourishing. Maureen, our young children, packed up and moved to Virginia and I was the first executive director of the American Center for Law and Justice. We met back then, ACLJ, doing pro-life work, um, but still serving the Lord as a Catholic. You know know that we, in the trenches back then, met many other Christians and we came together because we heard the cry of the poor, children in the womb. But during that time also, my love for the church led to a door being opened, and I was invited to prepare for ordination as a deacon. And I did, and it turned my life upside down. I will never forget lying prostrate on the ground on a cold floor at St. Matthew's, and I had two things go through me. One sounds spiritual, the other one doesn't, but the one that doesn't turned out to be prophetic. The first was fiat. The Mary and surrender. I love Our Lady, we're consecrated to Our Lady, and I knew that she had called me to say yes, mm-hmm. and her yes is really the prototype for all of us. But the second one, and it almost happened seconds after, was uh-oh, <laughs> and I knew that was the Holy Spirit. And it proved to be the case, because within six months, I was up in Northern Virginia I ended up studying at the John Paul II Institute while it was still strong, and I'll leave it there, under some wonderful people. I also ended up studying with the Melkites and serving, as I told you, at the Divine Liturgy. Went back to Chesapeake where our kids were, continued work, Catholic online, Catholic online school, ministry in a parish, ministry nationally, but all of it was geared toward loving the Catholic Church and believing that the fullness of truth does indeed subsist within the Catholic Church. And I knew that she needed strong, holy laymen and women, bishops, priests, deacons, religious. I was going on 64, working out of my home, and doing the ministry, doing a little bit of law, Somebody sent me something called An Apostolic Constitution on Teaching by Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. I read it as a theologian, as somebody concerned about the church, and I said, wow, this is wonderful. If this were implemented throughout the country, maybe even beyond, we'd begin to see the desperately needed restoration of the church. So to make a long story short, Bishop and I started writing one another, and we became what before the internet you would have called pen pals. I'd send him an article, he'd send me an article, and it just began to grow. We started texting one another. I ended up visiting him here. In fact, I sat in this room. He was right there after we prayed with that evangelical joy that is his pointing at Jesus. It's about him, he said, and I spent time with him. Another time, I came out for a week, and I was sort of incognito because I am known publicly, but I traveled with him and watched him minister all over this diocese. Confirmations, wonderful, wonderful holy masses, and I saw the real deal. A successor of the apostles, a genuine bishop, who knew how to bishop, and how to pray. And I began to see that in a special way, the two pillars in his life, it's really out of the vision of Don Bosco, Mm -hmm. his consecration to Our Lady, and his love for the Holy Eucharist. He's an adorer. He spends, I don't want to embarrass him, but he spends a long time before the Blessed Sacrament, every day, Mm -hmm. and it keeps him going. He's a wonderful man of God. So after a third visit, we talked about the possibility of coming, assisting him. Now, as a deacon, 27 years, and having done a lot of study, I knew deacons are not once again in the church, at least in the Roman Catholic Church, because of a shortage of priests. We're not called because of a shortage of priests. We are ordained, not to the priesthood, but under the ministry. Well, what's the ministry? Well, when you go back to what's often called the golden years, the first 400 years, and you see the Stevens, the Phillips, the Lawrences, the Ephraims, that was the deacon. And mostly what the deacon did was assist the bishop. Mm-hmm. So I saw it when he invited me to come, an invitation to live this calling mm-hmm. in the way the early church meant it. And I came out here, and Lorreen, God bless her, my wonderful wife, she's Realized that she's married to a missionary mm-hmm. um, and we relocated. I came here as really to assist the bishop as deacon. I wear a number of hats. I advise theologically and you know, on legal issues, pro-life issues. I'm the director of deacon formation. And then he asked me to take a position at the school here, the Bishop Thomas K. Gorman Catholic School, because he wanted it to become, it's a good school, but he wanted it to become profoundly Catholic. Hmm. Well, hearkening back to when I was a young man at Steubenville, I said, well wait, I I had the privilege of working alongside of a young priest named Father Mike Scanlon, who did that at a college that was spiritually bankrupt and nearly financially bankrupt. So I became dean of Catholic identity at the school, which is where I office now. And also he made me the John Paul II uh, fellow. But I'm basically here to assist the bishop. That's why we're in Tyler, Texas. In fact, and you know this, even though we raised our kids in Virginia, um, I grew up in Massachusetts. And to me, anything south of Connecticut was the south. And I thought we were going to Texas, I was gonna see tumbleweeds and cactuses and, you know. Well, what I found in East Texas is a beautiful place, green rolling hills, but what I found in this diocese, because it's led by a bishop who guards the deposit of faith without compromise, who speaks and teaches the truth, I see a witness of a profoundly Catholic diocese where there is legitimate diversity, and I'm gonna sound theological here, within orthodoxy, right doctrine, In orthopraxy. Mm -hmm. So we have the full expression of the beautiful richness of the Catholic Church. Now, he is coming under a lot of attack. But that's because he's faithful. And we're living in a very difficult time in the church. And I thank God for the privilege I have of assisting this man. So that's a short version. I could go on, I won't, especially with sounding like a frog but I'm 68 years old. I don't know how many more years I have left, but I'm honored to pour them out, to hold his arms up, to stand with him as his deacon, as his brother, as his friend, and as his servant in the
1: Lord. Hmm. I have a very human question. That's difficult. You said you left when you were 64. You've got grown children and grandchildren over there. Your wife is like a superhero. It's unreal how many wives are gonna say yes to we're gonna uproot and do this incredible thing. What was, how did that even, how does that even work? Hey my friends, now is the time to stand up and fight. We are just about to have the synod on synodality and everything that you've seen indicates that it's going to be an absolute disaster. We have Father James Martin, as a personal appointee of the Pope speaking at it. We've got Cardinal supich Cardinal Tobin. These picks of the Pope to engage in this synod are indicative of where we're going. We're going into heresy. And at these times of great crisis, the church, especially those called in the laity to work for the glory of Christ and his church, are called to gather. And strategize. Back in 2014, LifeSight launched something called Rome Life Forum. It was a gathering at that point of some 75 life and family leaders from all around the world to strategize as to what we could do. And when we gathered, the majority of people were most concerned about what? About Pope Francis, about what was going on in Rome. But this was 2014, but the life and family leaders saw it first. Now, a decade on, we are confronted with some of the most severe challenges the church has ever faced. And so our tradition at LifeSite is to continue with Rome Life Form, which has continued every year until we had to take a break over COVID because we weren't permitted. But we're starting it up again. Please come, if you feel so called, to Rome, October 31st and November 1st, the very end of the Synod on Synodality. And uh, we'll be there to strategize with His Eminence, with His Excellency, and with many life and family leaders from around the world. For Life State News, this is John Henry Weston. And may God bless you.
0: Well, Laureen came with me on my second visit and had the same experience with this wonderful bishop. My wife, Laureen, is a convert to the church before she met me. She's a woman of deep faith, deeply Marian, deeply Eucharistic, and a woman of prayer very down to earth, very fun, very joyful. So she balances me out, I tend to be, and you know this, very intense and driven. And she's just a gift from the Lord. I mean, we're working on 50 years of marriage. I'm very, very privileged. You know, I should tell you this, on the Feast of St. Lawrence, just last week, the bishop gathers all of his deacons and offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And then he has the deacons renew their promises. But then, if they're married, he has them renew their marriage vows. Hmm. I've never seen that done until I came here. I've seen the other, of course, the annual renewal of promises. But it's so powerful. And so it's just less than a week. And I must admit, as I looked in the eyes of my beloved wife, I started weeping. Now, some of that's because I'm getting old. You know, I do cry very easily. (laughs) But it was because of the realization of how blessed I am to have a partner in marriage who has not only just put up with this call, but knew it was the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, she knew that we were called to move here. And that's been the case at every missionary call, whether it was Steubenville, where we married, frankly, but then going to the ACLJ, And then my leaving after ordination to do all that studies and to live simply. We sold our last home so that I could study more of John Paul. Mm -hmm. So I really am married to a very holy woman. Now our children, great kids. One of them moved here, our youngest son. (laughs) He's a good man. Um, Our oldest daughter lives in Richmond. Our other kids all live. One lives out in Seattle. Uh, We do visit them. They miss us. They make that very clear. Mm -hmm. I just recently went through some health issues for the first time in my life. Very humbling, very spiritually enriching. Mm -hmm. So they're concerned about me, dad. Um, The grandchildren call me Poppy. But uh, they know that I need to follow the Lord. They've grown up in, I guess, the Catholic equivalent of what they used to call in Protestant homes. As PKs, preachers' kids. Mm -hmm. My kids have grown up as my kids. You know, whether I was a layman doing uh, Catholic work or uh, a deacon doing Catholic work, they always knew the Lord and the church was why I was here. Mm -hmm. And they haven't understood it well. I won't say which one in particular had a hard time with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, But we pray for our kids every day. And now, particularly with FaceTime and the like, we just saw them Mm -hmm. and they just came out here, my daughter, my second oldest, when I had been hospitalized. But there's a sacrifice to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but my wife is a woman of deep faith. If you go into our home, the home that the Lord provided for us here John Henry, when we found it and we lease, we don't own any homes. We did that for years, raised all those kids, you know, all of that. We live simply but when we went into the house, we named it Beth Shalom, House of Peace, and it really is. But when you walk in, there's icons everywhere, votive candles, you know, and people look at it. It's a Catholic home, and it's a wonderful place. So I I married a
1: woman who's holy. Beautiful. So one of the things about the diaconate, actually my dad was a deacon as well, in the Maronite, right, but, a lot of people don't know what a deacon really is because they, you know, if they're older, they think, well, it didn't exist until Jean Paul II or something like that, or maybe it was brought back. We heard about it in the Bible, then it didn't exist. What's the actual truth on that? And what is the diaconate in terms of... I've always understood it as Christ's tripartite, three-part ministry, prophet, priest, and king. Obviously, the king is the bishop. The priest is there for the sacraments, the the priest who offers the the sacrifice of mass and and, and confession, what is the role of the deacon in terms of being a prophetic role?
0: First of all, you mentioned that you see it in the Bible. Well, that's what we need to go back to, to really understand why deacons were chosen in the first place. So if you read the sixth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, you see that as the apostles grew busier and busier in the ministry of teaching and preaching, they needed help. Now sometimes people stop there and say yes, so the deacons cared for the widows, took care of the needs of the community, which they did, but you can't stop there. Because when you go to the next chapter, what do we see? Stephen, preaching and teaching, the first martyr, a deacon. Mm. And then you keep going, what do we see? Philip, one of the original seven. And there's an Ethiopian eunuch, And he is reading the scroll of Isaiah and he asks Philip to explain it. And Philip jumps up in the chariot, that's why Bishop Strickland has named the Institute, the St. Philip Institute. And he explains to the Ethiopian eunuch what the scroll of Isaiah was saying and the messianic prophecies. And then he baptizes him. And when you study the first four chapters of the early church, you see a flourishing role of deacons whether you look at Lawrence or Ephraim, so many, which just commemorated the anniversary of St. Lawrence. He's in the Roman canon. Mm-hmm. St. Lawrence is a deacon. The Roman Catholic Church in particular, in reinstituting it as a permanent rank of orders at this, the last council, Roman Catholics tend to think, well, it's just come back again. Eastern Catholics, like your dad, No, no, it never disappeared. There's an unbroken tradition of deacons. Deacons are not priests or mini-priests. They're not here because there's a shortage of priests. They are a ministry inspired by the Holy Spirit as a part of Jesus's continuing presence. We reflect Jesus, the servant, and yes, in a prophetic role. And another way of understanding this is the theology of orders itself. The bishop has the fullness of orders. Mm -hmm. He's the bishop, but he's still a priest, and he's still a deacon. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be that the only other person who could wear a dalmatic, which is the outer vestment of a deacon, was the the bishop. bishop. Mm -hmm. And he would wear it under his bishop's chasuble Mm -hmm. as a sign and a symbol that the deacon has a special role assisting the bishop. Mm -hmm. So, yes, deacons teach and preach, but they ought to have a ministry that's rooted in a properly understood notion of charity, a properly understood notion Mm -hmm. of going into the world to spread the seed of the kingdom. So one of the things, for example, here we look for, Bishop looks for, because he's the one who should be choosing potential aspirants for the diaconate is, is the man already engaged in ministry? Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean he should be ordained. We need good, you're a great example. We need lay ministers on fire for the Lord, fully formed, fully Catholic. But we don't want to approach the diaconate as though it's a weekend warrior um, just serving at the altar. No, deacons are servants. They make Christ the servant present and they're supposed to be a part of what is properly understood as the new evangelization of the church mm-hmm. it's not waving banners that's recovering the charisma the core and living a dynamic Catholic life so deacons should be in prisons they should be in hospitals they should be engaged in pro-life work they should be feeding the poor and the hungry they should be engaged as ordained ministers, making the Lord present in a sacramental way. Now, the deacon also, in the Roman Catholic Church in particular, is an ordinary minister of baptism, and can witness weddings, brings viaticum to the sick and the dying, um, can preside at uh, funeral services, and that those are good things. By the way, they don't do that in the Eastern Church. Mm. And that's a theological discussion. But anyway, but primarily a deacon is ordained, as the canon law says, and I'm paraphrasing, and the catechism says, not to the priesthood, but to the ministry. Mm. So that is the role of a deacon. And the deacons who live that find it to be a challenging, sacrificial calling it really is a vocation. Um, you know, As you know, the, the etymology of vocation is voice. You hear the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord. I was in a diocese that didn't have a diaconate. A bishop who wondered whether he'd ever have deacons. And there were some priests in that diocese who didn't want deacons. But this bishop approached me and asked me, have I ever considered the diaconate? Mm -hmm. And he said, with your evangelistic work, your pro-life work, I want you to pray, and pray with your wife. Is the Lord perhaps calling you to ordain ministry? Mm -hmm. Now here, all these years later, I think he got it. He understood it. We've tended to go at this thing now in the sort of top-down bureaucratic approach rather than recovering the early church's approach it comes from the bottom up mm. and it's a recognition by the community but also and in particular by the successor of the Apostles mm. in a calling where the grace of sacrament is given to that man and I knew it when I was prostrate on the floor when the bishop placed in my hands the book of the Gospels I knew it I knew it would never be the same And um, so it's really characterized the foundation of my own calling in ministry now for 27 years.
1: Beautiful. What (sighs) You're in the pro-life movement forever and ever. (laughs) You... Hopefully I won't need to be. Well, you had what all of us had back in the day. In John Paul's time, we had Hard bishops sometimes who didn't support you in your pro-life work. Yeah. The Pope always had your back. Under Benedict, it was the same. We always knew Benedict anyway because Ratzinger would write all the documents for John Paul that we just love anyway. That changed uh, in the last decade. And you're inside the the ministerial, the ministry, the ordained ministry. This is tough times because the pro-lifers very early on, that was the biggest shift we saw. Wasn't, you know, a lot of the things that you might hear about now with, you know, now it it seems to be right out of kilter. But even back in 2014, I remember we had a meeting of pro-life leaders in Rome called Rome Life Forum. And we sat around, there was only 75 of us, we sat around in a circle, and we were asked, what are the most concerning things for you around the world, and everybody's from different countries. Yeah. Around the table, actually it wasn't even a table, 75 people sitting in a circle. But the number one concern, by far, was we seem to have lost the backing of the Holy Father for the right to life, or, or that, that major concern. Over the last 10 years, things have got progressively worse, you might say, even to the point of the exhortation Gaudete in excitate, which um, in it, I don't know, you've probably read it, it's the exhortation that talks about abortion and immigration as issues for consideration and political concerns. And the wording goes something like, I can get it exactly, but it says that anyone would consider, as talking about abortion, a more important issue politically than immigration. Such considerations are hardly worthy of a politician, let alone a Christian. And of course, to the pro-life movement, which always saw that as the preeminent issue, JP2, who said that over and over again, Ratzinger at the time, who confirmed it as one of the essentials, the non-negotiables, as he called them, and then even included a sort of exegesis on that in Worthiness to Receive Communion that he issued in 2004, we're confused. As someone who was in the pro-life movement, who has that at heart, what do you make of this, and what do you suggest we do with it, as pro-lifers who love the faith, and just want it? there is no word else to go.
0: When I was in seminary, I was reading a book by Henry and He talked about a nuclear man, you know, and people who grew up in the 1980s were kind of formed by that immediate and constant threat of nuclear annihilation. My generation has grown up, you know, under the specter of priestly sexual abuse.
1: What say you, Mr. Person is the defendant guilty or not guilty?
0: I think that for many of us that has also been all encompassing, you know. I mean I entered the seminary in January of two thousand four and it's basically been there for me from in the beginning. John Henry, I think it's important we keep three things in mind because you raise a fact. We're living in a very troubled time in the church. The first thing I call to mind is church history. Now, I've had a lot of studies. That was one of my minors in my working studies at CUA. We've been through times like this before. Now, some people say this is the worst. I don't know. We've been through difficult times. The church will persevere. The Lord will give us the leaders that are needed. So we can trust him. But, I mean, I'll I'll be the first to say, I was naive. I loved John Paul II. I met him and it changed my life forever. I spent year after year studying him, studying his encyclicals under giants at the old JP Two, like David Schindler, the senior and, and others. And then at CUA. And then Benedict, oh, the wonderful theologian. I thought we were living in the golden age of the Catholic Church. During that time, I had the privilege of helping other Christians come into full communion, drawn by the gospel of life, Evangelium Vitae. And so many of those rich robust encyclicals and apostolic exhortations and letters of John Paul II continued by Benedict. Now all of a sudden, it's like we've been thrown into a desert it's hard, but you know what? We need to pray and remember Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Magisterium includes all of those writings, they haven't been abrogated. So we've got the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, and by the way, over the years, particularly in pro-life, I've taken to using English names a lot. because. People don't understand Latin. You know, I can remember, I'll give you a little off to the side comment. Many years ago at Steubenville, I did a radio program and I had Dr. James Dobson on. Do you remember him? Mm. Dr. Jim Dobson, great evangelical psychologist who taught on the family. And I was interviewing him and and he's talking about the family. And I started quoting John Paul. And he said, Where did you get that? And I said, Well, it's from a book by John Paul the Pope. Yes, it's called Christian Family in the Modern World. The Pope wrote a book, and I sent him (laughs) a book. Anyway, back to what you asked. We still have Evangelium Vitae, and it's profound. And he speaks from the chair of Peter, and it hasn't been abrogated. We need to study it, quote it, and live it. The same is true with the splendor of truth, veritata splendor. I mean, we just remembered, I think, 30 years. It is incredible and it hasn't been abrogated. We've got the magisterium, we've got the sacred tradition, we've got 2,000 years. I think it calls on all of us, particularly as Catholics, to dig more deeply into that treasure chest and quote it and be affirmed by it and not allow ourselves to get discouraged because it looks like that's being changed. It can't be changed. The deposit of faith can't be changed, okay? It can't. Now, can doctrine evolve? Yes, properly understood, properly understood. And unfortunately, you're hearing development of doctrine thrown about and it's not properly understood. You've got to go back to Vincent of Lorraine. You've got to go back to Cardinal Newman. It can't be changed. It can develop in its application, but not be changed in its core. Mm -hmm. It's called the deposit of faith. It's gonna call on people in the pro-life movement doing some more study, and understanding those documents more, and relying on them, and quoting them. Okay, when we say doctrine can develop, you know I use the word evolve, that's not a good word. Doctrine can't be changed. We mm-hmm. can't. Remember Dominus Jesus too. I mean, we're living in an age of indifferentism, of relativism. Benedict warned about it, remember that? Mm-hmm. And the homily he gave before he was selected for the chair of Peter, he warned of what he called a dictatorship of relativism. We're in one. And sadly, even within the church, we see that relativism creeping in we see indifferentism creeping in. So while we honor the chair of Peter and pray for the Holy Father and respect that office, we also need to realize we stand on 2,000 years of sacred tradition and that magisterium that came to us from John Paul, I still believe he's gonna be called the Great, and from Benedict is still fresh and anointed and powerful. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church is very clear on abortion being intrinsically evil and one can never choose it. John Paul in in Splendor of Truth talked about freedom, freedom's constitutive connection, it's a big word, to truth. Mm -hmm. We may be free, but we must choose what is true, what is noble, and what is good. Otherwise, we lose our freedom. Like St. Paul warned, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What began in the spirit will it now end in the flesh? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So we need to reaffirm the truth. Otherwise, we're going to build our own chains and we're going to lose. You know, we're living in a very precarious mo- moment, particularly as pro life folks. We got the Dobbs decision, and I'm a constitutional lawyer. You know, I. That's my background. I knew after Dobbs, it wasn't the end of anything. It was just the beginning in 50 venues. Now we got a real battle, a real battle in all 50 states, and we need to be fully equipped. Yes, in the courts, yes, in being faithful citizens, but also in good grounding in what the scripture teaches and what the church has always taught, always Just go to the catechism, read the footnotes from the very earliest centuries. Abortion is not on an equivalent level with some of the other social wrongs. It is the preeminent issue. I was very happy when the USCCB reaffirmed it Mm -hmm. and Bishop Strickland is very strong. He's passionately pro-life. So it's gonna take more work from us. We may not be able to feel as comfortable But that's okay, maybe we needed to get uncomfortable because the battle is raging right now. And it's raging not just on the outside, but on the inside Mm -hmm. for the recognition of the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death at every age and stage. That is the core of the teaching of the gospel, of the sacred scriptures, of the sacred tradition, and of the magisterium of the church. We need to be able to stand firm in that. From the medical perspective, look, I mean, they don't even use the terms they used to use when we were cutting our teeth on pro-life work. You know, they don't deny the things they used to deny. They acknowledge it's the taking of a human life, Mm -hmm. but the woman ought to be able to freely choose to do it. We know that's insane, but that's what we're living in right now. So we need to be able to stand firm in our position, well equipped with all of the scientific and medical data, with the legal data, good, you know, when I was doing pro-life and uh, public interest law, there weren't a lot of groups. We had the heroes like Jay Sekulow and the ACLJ and a couple of other groups. Now we've got dozens. I say great, bring them on, the more the merrier. Liberty Council, um, the, the Beckett Fund, we need them all. We need to be continue to be engaged in the civil arena, but we also need to have good theological grounding. Mm-hmm. We need to quote the catechism on, on life. We need to quote the magisterial documents, including the encyclical of John Paul, the encyclicals of John Paul. Because you know, Splendor of Truth, Veritatis Splendor, has a lot to say about this, too. Because mm-hmm. it speaks to the very definition of freedom, you know, in Benedict XVI once said, in uh, one of his locutions, it was beautiful, that one could say that Christianity is a philosophy of freedom, hmm. and in the Gospel of Life, John Paul warned of a counterfeit notion of freedom. That's what we're dealing with. And we also, and I'll stop after this, we also have to watch our language. We made a mistake allowing the word choice to be made. Look. Ernie Nathanson, God rest his soul, was a friend and a wonderful man, the silent scream, the abortionist, one of the early founders of what was then called the National Abortion Rights League, huh? He died in a state of grace, thank God, still doing penance. But he admitted to having come up with the term choice with a friend over drinks and we let it go and we still let it go. We've got to hold on to the language. Freedom is an example Truth is an example. Mm -hmm. Benedict warned us, it's upon us. How often do we hear now, well you have your truth and I have my truth and you have your truth. In short, there's no truth. We need to also thirdly get back to teaching the natural moral law. That's the Catholic tradition and we need to be familiar with it because ultimately it's not enough, for example, on the right to life to just return it to the states. We need to recover the truth that there is a fundamental right to life and it comes out of the natural law written on every human art and we ought to be able to explain that. And we're not doing that. and We're buying language. We're allowing terms like freedom to be used and the rights language. It's never right to take an innocent human life. I mean, years ago I began toying in my articles, you may remember some of them, with coming up with language to describe the child in the womb as our first neighbor in the first home of the whole human race. And we all know it's never right to take the life of us an inner innocent neighbor. I mean, there's a lot of other ways we can approach this. We now have ultrasound, we now have medical facts on our behalf, so what are we dealing with? We're dealing with, sadly, the very core problem. And I guess I'll add that as the fourth point. The devil, Hmm. what's going on is diabolical. So we need to do spiritual warfare like we've never done it before. We need to adore the Eucharist. We need to call upon Our Lady. We need Saint Joseph, the terror of demons. We need to be living spiritual warfare. We need to realize, we need the St. Michael prayer at the end of every Mass. We need priests who won't deny the existence of the devil, but will do battle with the devil and teach the lay faithful to do so. And we need bishops who will do so because the Apostle Paul was right back then and he's right now. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6 and we need to put on the whole armor of God. I know that's a lot, but that's our task right now. And we can't get discouraged. The devil wants us to get discouraged. He wants to take away hope.
1: of 2022 was 25 years these one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at StJosephsPartners.com, where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time may god bless you the last question i have for you is we're just about to head into a synod um termed by some the synod on sodomy it's called the synod on synodality but with the uh picks, if you will, that have been slated to go in there, including laity, who are totally on the other side of the church's teaching on life and family matters, Um, with Father James Martin being one of the ones chosen to be there, with Cardinal McElroy, who's known on the issue, uh, Cardinal Hollerich, known on the issue, with many of the, the vote in Germany for the blessing of same-sex unions in churches was 38 in favor, eight opposed, and 11 abstentions. That really shows where the battle's at, and a lot of people say, oh, that's just Germany. It's not just Germany. Belgium also is already doing it, and has been for a while now. Part of what we're doing at LifeSite to prep for that is we're encouraging a movement of fasting and prayer, Wednesdays and Fridays, during the Synod, and it could be fasting from food, but also from other things like, you know, uh, video gaming or watching the TV or whatever, but um, that issue seems to be very much alive, both in the world and in the Church. Um, it's where you get a lot of persecution, both in the world and in the Church. It's interesting to note that Bishop Strickland's visitation came on the heels of his Going out to Los Angeles to offer reparation for the sacrilege of, of the you know sisters, so-called Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence doing their thing, honor being honored by the L.A. Dodgers. What's your take and suggestion over that issue, which seems to be crushing the world and the church right now? Yeah, I too am deeply concerned
0: about the synod on synodality and what it looks like. It seems every day, just this morning, I was reading about one of the representatives, a woman who's come out clearly standing for abortion rights, quote, unquote. By the way, I'll never use that term. It's never right. Um, The whole LGBTQ agenda. But, and again, I'm not reducing this to simple terms. There was a time when it said that close to 80% of the bishops of the church were Aryan, right? We came through it. Jesus only had 12 and one of them was a dud. And look what happened. And at various times in history, we've gotten to a point where everybody's ready to count the church in her fullness of truth, in her dynamic, profound presence in the earth, down for the count. But you know what? They were surprised. Now. There's been a lot of quoting of a 1969 um, message from Joseph Ratzinger. Mm. It was recorded in Faith and Freedom that Ignatius Press published. And I can't quote it, but it was prophetic. And he talked about the future and what was gonna happen. And he spoke of the church becoming small, but then rising up. I believe we're in one of those transitions. I truly do. And I think the final thing I'd like to say is the importance of people like you, of the lay faithful. That is key right now. You know, it has been in times past. When you look at, for example, the Franciscan movement, it was a lay movement. Mm -hmm. There have been great lay movements in the church that have from the ground up, Francis heard the Lord, the cross at San Damiano, Go and rebuild my church. We need lay movements. I see you've started a league of some sort, which is great. We need lay people to take their leadership right now and speak out boldly, unafraid, yes, with respect for the hierarchy, yes, with prudence, but unafraid with courage and speak the truth and gather together and work together That's what I think the Holy Spirit is doing right now. So if the synod on synodality seems to be going the wrong way, error will not be accepted. Error leads to the slavery of sin. Error leads to the slavery of sin. And God wants freedom for all men and women. And the only path to freedom is through that cross that Bishop Strickland pointed to. The first time I sat here in this room, with him. Through Jesus Christ, we need truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we also need to boldly stand up and preach the gospel. Because along with all of this darkness coming in on the moral teaching of the church, trying to undermine it, we also have a basic loss of the core elements of the gospel. We have a growing indifferentism where people are saying, oh, there are many paths to God. What Peter preached is still true. There's one name in heaven and on earth by which men can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the teaching of the church. And the church's primary mission is the salvation of souls. We need to recover that, and the lay faithful need to remind us of it. People like you are doing that. People like Kevin Wells is doing that. Other people are doing it. And it needs to be said, I heard a cleric talk about World Youth Day and say, we didn't wanna, we don't wanna convert these kids. We want them to be better, whatever, Hindus, are. we wanna bring them to Jesus. The whole world is called into the church. The whole world is called to salvation through Jesus Christ baptism and incorporation into his mystical body. And the Catholic Church is the fullness of that body. So we need dynamically Catholic, faithful lay men and women. And you know what? We need to realize once again that there is legitimate diversity within orthodoxy, right doctrine, in orthopraxy. So, for example, we need the beauty of the traditional Latin Mass and those who love it. We need it. I, I, I liked some in Pontificum, I thought Benedict was, was right. But we also need properly celebrated, beautiful Novus Ordo Masses. We need to realize that there are people who have been brought into the heart of the Church through enthusiastic movements. And while they need to be carefully pastored, we need to see them as what John Paul called them, the finger of God we can't be divided within we need to stand together faithful Catholics I go to a Novus Ordo Mass but I will defend the Latin Mass it's wonderful and I've also studied there were t- the early liturgies of John Chrysostom and, and Basil I love the Eastern Liturgy we need to be standing together we do and I'd say this if it goes out please Don't allow the devil to divide us. Traditional Catholics, renewal Catholics, this kind of Catholic. Here's what we need, faithful Catholics, faithful to Jesus Christ and his church, faithful to the magisterium, the Bible, the sacred tradition, and courageous, because it's gonna get more difficult, not less difficult, and we need men and women who are willing to stay with it and to remain faithful. May God give us the grace we need to stay with it and remain faithful. Amen. Deacon Keith thank, thank you, you my thank friend. You. Good to see you, it's been two decades.
1: Indeed. It has.
0: <laughs> I know, we're getting old.
1: We are. And God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time.